There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 23, and is there honey still for tea? What will you do? Edith asked quietly. What can I do? I shrugged. I suppose I will go back to Cambridge and see if my father can get me a job in the college. I don't think that'll be a problem. He's a fairly important fellow there. I imagine he'll be able to pull a string or two. Of course, I shall have to listen to the smug I told you so's, but there are worse things than that, aren't there? Will you let me pay for your train ticket? She said. I couldn't, I said. I insist, she said. You're leaving because of me, and I know how hard up you are. She went to a roll-top bureau, and I heard the rustling of paper. Take this. She turned pressed an envelope into my hand, and then embraced me warmly. On the tram into London, I discovered that she'd put four crisp pound notes inside for me, bless her, money that she could ill afford. It got me back to Cambridge, and some left over. Once there, I presented myself, somewhat sheepishly, at the porter's lodge of the old college. My father was there, standing at post behind the counter there. I knew he'd been warming his feet by the fire in the back room just moments before, but the cumbersome wooden door had given its hinge-squeaking early warning, and its weight served to stall visitors just long enough for him to always appear uncannily ready to serve. His face betrayed no emotion at the return of his prodigal second son. Or did it? Was I imagining it, or was there a slight tremble to his lip? Arthur? Well, well. Is this a flying visit, or are we back now? We are back, I said. And your theatrical adventure? It is no more. Over and done with? Over, yes. And as you rightly say, done with. My father nodded slowly, taking this in. He could see I was chastened and disheartened, and he decided not to press me further just then, for which I was grateful. Do I take it that you are looking for alternative employment, then? I am, yes, if you will have me. Hmm. I'm sure something can be done. We always seem to be short-handed. He lifted the hinged counter and stepped out, guiding me out into the courtyard with an arm around my shoulder. "'Why don't I walk you over to the kitchens, and we can let your mother know you are here. She'll be glad to see you, I'm sure, and there will no doubt be some of her excellent fruit tart left over from luncheon.' "'Thank you, father,' I said, a lump in my throat suddenly. He smiled. "'You'll have to get used to calling me Mr. Dando, you know, if you're going to be resuming your duties here.' I gave a little laugh, only a little one, because he wasn't joking.' My mother welcomed me back with a flowery embrace in the midst of preparing several great baking trays of scones. "'Hello, dear. You'll have to excuse me, I'm afraid. So much to do. I'll see you at home.' And my elder brother Lance, still a college porter under my father, as he had been since his return from active service against the Boer, passed us in the old courtyard as we made our way back to the lodge, a pair of newly polished shoes clamped in each paw. "'All right, Arthur,' he muttered without even breaking his stride. "'All right, Lance.' I replied. Two years I'd been away, and that was that. There were, unexpectedly, no I told you so's, no smugness, no smirking superiority. There wasn't even faint surprise. I was simply reabsorbed into the college-serving community as though I'd never left, or rather as though this was always going to be my fate sooner or later, which in a way felt even worse. 
My old bed remained, made up in the room I'd always shared with Lance in the family home, vouchsafed to us by the beneficence of the college just off Trumpington Street. I just had to shift some of my brother's boots off the blanket. Lance showed next to no curiosity about where I'd been or what I'd been doing. The only conversation we had on the subject was whilst lying in the dark one night, and it went like this. So, you went to America, then? Yes. See any cowboys? I'm not sure. I saw some cowboy hats in Montana, and some fellas with spurs on their boots who might have been cowboys. Indians? No, no Indians. Good night. Good night, Lance. I was given responsibility for three staircases, cleaning and making beds, and as it was out of term time, quite a few of the rooms were unoccupied and just needed airing out. It was not particularly taxing work, but I must admit it was good to feel coins jingling in my pocket at the weekends, and to be able to go out for a pint or two without worrying where the next meal was coming from. Towards the end of the summer, the college, indeed the whole city, began to fill up in preparation for the start of a new academic year. The students seemed young, younger than before, and after a week or two I noticed preparations being made for a smoking concert in the old reader, much like the one where I had first trod the board some five years earlier. I saw the young gents' fresh-faced excitement at the prospect of stepping up to try and get a precious laugh from their peers. It reminded me of my friend, Ralph Luscombe, the student who had become my friend and first introduced me to the thrills of performing. Like him, though, I thought bitterly, these striplings were doomed to have that joy thrashed out of them by the real world, and like him were probably inescapably destined to spend their adult lives trapped in the family business. As was I. I didn't sneak a look at the smoking concert, nor did I venture along to see what the footlights were about. The students I had known in that society would all have graduated by now, of course, but Rottenberg was still there, the rotter himself, the eminence grise of the mechanics department, who had designed and built the huge dinosaur contraption from wood, canvas and pulleys, which had in turn attracted a curious Fred Carnot to Cambridge and thus started my own adventure in the professional music halls. The show they were doing was called Cheer O Cambridge, and had a catchy ragtime title song which I heard absolutely everywhere, not least because they were rehearsing in our college. I would see them coming and going, the Rotter and Jack Hulbert and the pianist Alan Murray, whose room I was responsible for tidying, but I averted my eyes and bowed my head and was not recognised. I had no interest in seeing their show. To my hardened professional eye it would have seemed like the sort of scratch nonsense cobbled together by children in their parents' clothes on a Christmas afternoon. I had no interest either in seeking out professional entertainment, even though the other porters, even Lance, would often head down to the town's music hall at the weekend and try to talk me into joining them. The very idea seemed too painful just then, though, and I stayed away. In point of fact, I seemed to have no great interest in laughing. I tried not to linger on memories of Tilly arm-in-arm with Chaplin, but it was not easy. Every pleasant memory I had of being on stage seemed to lead me back to that and thoughts of defeat, having to give second best. To him. I suppose in my bitterness I was not particularly good company, and after being pretty sociable to begin with, the other staff started to leave me alone. I found more and more that when I went to the pub at the weekend it was by myself, and I was probably drinking more than I would otherwise have done. I hoped it would help me forget, but it didn't really. It just made me drunk while I remembered. Things must have reached a pretty low point for it to have caught Lance's attention. One day he cornered me as I was coming out of the linen room. "'Tonight,' he said. "'Tonight what?' "'No argument. I've bought you a ticket.' "'For what? What are you talking about?' "'You've been so bloody miserable since you came back. "'It's time you had a good laugh.' "'Oh, no, I don't want to go to the bloody music hall, Lance.' "'He reached into his pocket for the tickets "'and waved them in front of my face. "'Not the hall, little brother. 
You and me is going to the circus. I sighed inwardly, but it was an unusual gesture for him to even acknowledge my existence, let alone show concern for my well-being, so I nodded. All right. Thanks, Lance. So that evening we made our way to Parker's Peace, where Hengler's Circus had erected a rather impressive big top. It was going to be packed as well, as crowds of people were bustling inside, humming with what seemed like more than ordinary excitement. Lance and I perched on a wooden bench, a little puzzled by the air of expectancy. The orchestra struck up a little fanfare, and then the ringmaster entered the arena, resplendent in bright red tails and a top hat. With a little ceremony, he guided a small party of VIPs to their seats front and centre, waving his arms to urge us to applause. There was the Mayor of Cambridge, a beaky-looking fellow by the name of Algernon S. Campkin, looking very pleased with himself and the grand chain of office around his neck, which he fingered constantly. He was followed in by a little group of middle-aged gents in blazers, who we applauded without being quite sure who they were. The last to emerge, however, was an unmistakably distinctive figure, tall in his sixties with a big grey beard, and a paunch, familiar from cigarette cards and newspaper reports of his exploits. It was none other than Dr. W. G. Grace himself. I dimly recalled hearing tell of a gentleman versus players veterans match that was taking place at Fenner's. Presumably these were some of the veterans in question. A great cheer greeted the doctor, and he waved to the crowd as he took his seat. Well, despite myself, I found the circus diverting. The elephants were astonishingly large close up, the trapeze artists breathtaking, the bareback horse riding ditto, and midway through the evening my hands were sore from clapping. Then it was time for the clowns. The ringmaster strode into the centre of the ring and bellowed at the top of his voice, "'Ladies and gentlemen, Hengler's Circus is proud to present to you, for your entertainment and delight, the premier clown in the king's realm, Mr. Whimsical Walker!' "'Good heavens,' I thought, the very fellow I'd met down at Poverty Corner. I turned to Lance. "'I know this chap,' I said. "'So?' he shrugged, unimpressed. The orchestra burst into life and half a dozen clowns ran around the edge of the ring, clockwise and anti-clockwise, bumping into one another, rolling around. Then Whimsical Walker made his entrance. He was all in white, with a great belly I didn't remember him having before, and a huge beard that covered most of his torso. His nose was bright red, and in his hand he wielded a cricket bat. Plainly he was going to start with a sketch, lampooning the evening's celebrity guest. All heads turned as one to look at the good doctor. He was not amused. Whimsical Walker strode around the ring, proclaiming himself the greatest cricketer the world had ever seen. So confident was he in his abilities, he cried, that he would give five pounds to any man who could get him out. On cue, two of the lesser clowns produced a set of stumps and banged them into the ground in the centre of the ring. "'If only there was someone here with us this evening,' Walker went on, "'someone who could provide me with the sort of challenge that would really test me. "'Perhaps you, sir?' he said, planting himself in front of Grace. The scourge of Australia, the captain of England, the second greatest cricketer on the face of the earth. With a little slate of hand, he suddenly produced a ball and offered it to the great man. Will you oblige me and everyone here by bowling at the great whimsical walker? The audience dutifully cheered at this, but the doctor was unmoved. Sir, Walker said, waving his arms to whip up more cheering, but the old cricketer was having none of it. He folded his arms across his stupendous belly and growled. They've come to watch you capering about, not me bowling. 
Things started to get a little uncomfortable then for the nation's premier clown. He persisted a little while longer, trusting that the crowd would quickly break down Grace's truculent resistance, but he badly underestimated his opponent. He turned then to other members of the cricketing party, but none of them wanted to get on the wrong side of the hero, and all shook their heads. "'Will no one accept my challenge?' Whimsical Walker cried in desperation, and people were beginning to shift on the wooden benches, wanting it to stop. "'Here!' a voice near me shouted, and to my astonishment it was Lance. He grabbed my hand and shoved my arm up in the air, pulling me up to my feet. "'What are you—' "'He bowls!' Lance called out, and before I could protest further, clowns had swarmed from all directions and were dragging me into the ring. Applause rang out, and you could almost taste the relief in the air that the awkwardness was over.' Walker swaggered over to the stumps to take guard. "'Now,' he said, holding a finger up, "'you are a bowler, is that right?' "'I have bowled,' I said. "'In fact, I'd played just a couple of weeks before "'for the staff against the professors, "'and I was reasonably confident I could pick up the cash prize "'if there really was one. "'Are you fast?' "'Reasonably so,' I said, "'throwing the ball from hand to hand. "'Walker did a little pantomime of apprehension at this, "'and the audience were beginning to warm back up.' "'In that case,' he said, and snapped his fingers. "'One of his cohorts quickly galloped over to the entrance "'and returned with a gigantic bat, almost as big as the clown himself, "'which completely covered the stumps. "'Now remember,' he said, "'you must clean bowl me to win the five pounds.' "'Well, I hammed it up a little, but the task was clearly going to be impossible. "'As I ran up to bowl, Walker pretended to be scared "'and hid behind the giant bat with his knees knocking together.' Then, when the ball arrived, he ducked, closed his eyes, and scooped it high up into the air. The ball described an eerily perfect parabola, and landed right in the meaty paws of Dr. Grace. He could hardly have shelled it if he'd tried, and they heard the cheers in Granchester. "'Thanks for dropping me in it,' I said to Lance as we were making our way out later. "'I thought you might win the money,' he muttered. Just then, a clown in a conical hat appeared at my elbow and began tugging my sleeve. "'Mr. Walker would like a word,' he whispered. "'What's that?' I said. "'Speak up.' "'I can't,' he whispered. "'I'm supposed to be the silent one. "'Mr. Walker would like a word with you.' "'I followed this chap, and he led me over to a little caravan. "'Whimsical Walker was inside, midway through taking off his face paint. "'Aha!' he cried. "'There is the young man. "'Thank you, sir. You quite saved my life.' "'Oh, no, 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 no,' I said.' "'Yes, yes, yes,' Walker insisted. "'The mayor particularly asked me to get up something to spoof the old cricketer, "'but who knew he was going to be such a cantankerous soul, eh?' "'I'm happy I could help,' I said. "'Sit, sit,' the old clan said, "'shoving some oversized boots and a collapsible bunch of flowers out of the way to make room for me. "'Now tell me, because I'm not often wrong. "'You have been on the stage, have you not?' "'What makes you say that?' I said.' "'Your instincts,' he cried, "'your instincts are sound, "'your perfect double-take when the big bat appeared, "'and that perfect delivery that just begged for me "'to send the catch to old misery guts.' "'You give me too much credit,' I said, "'but you are right. "'I was one of Fred Carno's comedians.' "'I knew it! I knew it!' Walker cried, "'punching his fist into his palm. "'I wonder, young man, whether I might interest you "'in a little When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 24. Chance Meeting. My first suspicion was that I was about to be offered a job as a clown, but thankfully that wasn't the case. It is just a one-off performance, Whimsical Walker explained. A benefit. At the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane. A week to rehearse. That should suffice, since we are a pair of old pros, eh? To rehearse what? I asked. I have been asked to give my old barbershop sketch, and I need a reliable stooge. You come into the shop for a shave, you sit in the chair. I start stropping my three-foot-long razor... Then I chop a cabbage to show how sharp it is. You make your eyes nice and wide, show a little bit of fear. Yes, feeling your neck, that sort of thing. Right. Then the lathering begins. Lather everywhere. Buckets of the stuff. Until we can hardly see your face anymore for lather. Then, swish, I swish the razor, and off comes your head. You want to cut off my head? Yes, yes, and it bounces around on the floor, and I'm talking to it, telling it everything's going to be all right, you see? I see. And the audience are shrieking because of all the blood. (laughs) And I'll tell them it's all going to be fine because we will just get the gentleman a new head. So you come in as my assistant now with a tray of replacement heads to choose from and then while I screw it on, we work you back into the chair for the reveal. Aha, I said. It's a substitution. Of course. I'm not really going to cut your head off. I'm not a madman. Now, it's messy, but it's a surefire hit, I promise you. So what do you say? Eh? Are we on? I considered for a moment or two and then said... Do you know what? I think I might actually be able to lay my hands on a papier-mâché model of my own head. I thought my father might raise objections to my taking the time off, but he was happy to release me. To be honest, Arthur, this is the first time I've seen you with a smile on your face in weeks. It does my heart good to see it, so go with my blessing. The next morning, then, I presented myself at Whimsical Walker's caravan, and we rode with the circus down to Hackney Marshes. There we rehearsed his barbershop routine between his performances, and he put me up on a little divan that pulled down out of one of his cupboards. As we worked together on the routine, I warmed to Whimsical Walker. It was clear that he enjoyed nothing so much as getting a laugh, whether on stage or during one of his many anecdotes. A good laugh, he would say, is sunshine in the house. That's Thackeray, that is. You could hardly mention anything in his presence without kicking off another story. I didn't mind, to be honest, as his tales were good value, and generally featured him falling over or being locked up for a night in the cells. Or else it would be the one about how he trained a donkey to sing and performed with it for Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle. The circus was where he'd spent most of his illustrious career, travelling the world with Henglers or with Barnum and Bailey, and he regarded himself very much as a classic clown, part of a long and noble tradition. In his pomp, he'd been the resident clown at the Drury Lane Theatre, appearing in pantomimes with the great and late Dan Leno and Herbert Campbell. 
His speciality was, as he never tired of mentioning, the Harlequinade, that odd bit of commedia dell'arte tacked onto the end of a pantomime which had all but died out. He blamed the musical for this, as now any Tom, Dick or Harry could call themselves an entertainer without the training or the reverence for traditional techniques that Wimmy, as he insisted on being called, regarded as essential. At the end of the evening, once he'd painstakingly removed his classical clown makeup, we would go for a drink. He would nurse a gaiety mixture, whisky cold with a slice of lemon, or perhaps a glass of chartreuse, and as the weekend's benefit approached, he began to confide in me. This is the last week of Hengler's, he said, and the echoing void looms large on the horizon. But, he held up a finger, I hear a rumour that they are planning to revive the good old Harlequinade at Drury Lane this Christmas. So if we are a hit, well... I didn't realise there was so much at stake, I said. Pish posh, he said. They will be begging good old Wimmy to return. You'll see. I hope so, I said. And I shall take care of you. Don't you worry. I will be needing a policeman, or perhaps a pantaloon, someone with good instincts. I didn't say anything to that, but it was kind, and it set me wondering. Could I? Could I throw myself back into the performing life? Wimmy drained his glass and gave me a sudden reminder of just how precarious a life it could be. Between you, me, and the doorpost, the old fellow said, I have lost an awful lot of my savings in a particularly ill-advised investment that went belly up, so if this weekend doesn't work out as I hope, I shall be pretty much on my beam ends. Crumbs, I thought. Nothing like a little bit of extra pressure to spice things up. On the Sunday, I arrived at the Drury Lane Theatre to find him already transformed into his working persona. From the ground up, he was every inch the clown. White shoes with black pom-poms, white stockings featuring a leafy design, then great frilly pantaloons bulging out around his backside, a very fancy white silk bodice with frilly sleeves and the same leafy patterns, topped off with full clown makeup. His silver-grey hair was teased into three startling spikes and coloured bright red, and the rest of his head was made up white, with his features picked out in red and black. He was just applying a bright red nose when I appeared at his dressing-room door. I always used to wear a black nose, you know, that's the tradition, but I found the children like the red better. I don't want to scare them, after all, he chattered, nervous as a kitten, despite all his years of experience. Well, you look like no barber I've ever seen, I said. Our turn came midway through the second half, and he had absolutely nothing to be nervous about. Goodness me, that barber shop was a riot. How the people loved it, and the old clown milked every lathery moment. For myself, even just standing anonymously alongside him plastered in soap, feeling the crackling electricity of a comedy routine was like a burst of fire straight into my veins. After four roaring curtain calls, I went to the tiny bathroom to clean myself up, and then fairly ran up the stairs to our dressing room, full of adrenaline and energy to celebrate with the old chap. I found him dabbing listlessly at his white face makeup. Well, well, Arthur. Things are never quite how we would want them to be, are they, eh? I thought about Tilly somewhere in the world, and about Charlie's smug smirk and the end of my Carno days, and I had to agree with the poor old soul. No, Wimmy, I'm, I'm afraid they're not, I said. The old clown sniffed and dabbed at his face again. He appeared to be removing his makeup, but I saw a glistening tear swept up by his cotton wool. He had barely had a minute to enjoy his triumphant return to his old stomping ground, the stage where he had enjoyed such successes with Lino and Campbell, before the theatre manager dealt him the cruel blow that there would be a pantomime but no harlequinade this year, and consequently no role for Walker W. It had hit him hard, I could see, and I decided to leave him to change in peace. 
I'll see you in the Albion, shall I? Indeed, dear boy, indeed. I shall be right along. He waved a frilly-sleeved farewell, and I headed out into the October chill of Covent Garden. I didn't go straight to the Albion, because I only had enough money for one drink, if that, and so I needed to time my arrival nicely. In any case, Wimmy would be an age getting ready, and a bit of fresh air and quiet contemplation was what I felt like, so I set off in the general direction of Leicester Square. I was just strolling past the front of the Empire, peering idly at the bill matter to see what was what, when who should heave to alongside and tap me on the shoulder but Stan Jefferson. "'Stan!' I cried with delight. "'My dear fellow, how have you been?' We shook hands vigorously, beaming all over our faces, our low points in the low countries quite forgotten. "'Mustn't grumble?' he said with a big grin. "'Oh, all right, maybe I'll grumble a bit in a minute, but how are you? How Are you working?' I explained that I'd just been playing stooge to Whimsical Walker, and his eyebrows shot up with surprise. "'Really?' he said. "'And where were you doing that? The 1880s?' "'Funny. And you? What happened to you when we got back from Belgium?' "'I made my way to Gordon's place in Hoban,' he said. "'I saw him on the pavement outside, dressed to the nines, obviously waiting for someone.' He looked so prosperous and clean, and I looked down at myself, and I was a tramp, a half-starved hobo, and I suddenly felt I could not intrude. So I hid. You hid? Behind a lamppost. God knows I was thin enough. Sure enough, Gordon's friends appeared in their finery, and off they went together, and I waited there until he returned at the end of the evening, and just as he was opening his front door, I hailed him. Did he know you? Not at first, but then he took me in and gave me a ferocious talking to him about how I would never make it as a comic, how I was wasting my life, and how I needed to get a grip of myself and knuckle down, and if I did, then maybe I could have a career in theatre management like him, and like our father, of course. It is in the blood. What did you say? What could I say? It was hard to argue with him. After all, he only wants what's best for me, doesn't he? And I did owe him all that money still for the rum and stuff, so I've been working for him as a script copier, trying to pay him back. It's so hard, by the way, the temptation to improve as you copy is so strong. And I have supplemented my meagre income by walking on in Gordon's productions of Ben My Tree at the Prince's. Ben My Tree? Whatever is that? I asked. It's Manx, apparently, if you can believe it. I still think of the Rummans, though. Maybe one day we'll be able to buy the props back, eh? Maybe, I said. I didn't have the heart to tell him I'd retired and would soon be heading back to Cambridge in college servitude. Come over to the Albion. I'll see if I can't get old Wimmy to stand you ajar. Wimmy? I'm sorry, I should use his full name, of course. Whimsical. Let's see how Whimsical's credit stands, shall we? The two of us set off back towards Covent Garden, arm in arm, two brothers reunited. Before we'd gone a hundred yards, however, we were stopped in our tracks by a familiar hail. Arthur! Stan! Fancy bumping into you! We turned, and there was Alf Reeves, our bow-tied, sturdy old company manager, large as life and just as welcome. "'I trust you lads are thriving,' Alf said, once a further bout of back-slapping and hearty handshaking was concluded. "'I've just been on with Whimsical Walker at the Drury Lane,' I said, "'and Stan here is at the Prince's.' "'Ha! Starring in the West End, is it?' Alf beamed. "'Starving in the West End, more like,' Stan muttered. "'And how about you, Alf?' I asked. "'The Governor treating you well?' "'Ha! He's not the problem,' Alf said. "'Why? What's up?' said Stan.' I'm taking a company over to America again. Charlie Chaplin is the number one, and the rest of the personnel is pretty much as before, but the odd two or three have let me down. Mike Asher, by any chance? I asked. Oh, how did you know that? Oh, just something he said that day on the Astoria, remember, back in the summer? Alf was outraged. 
Well, I wish the beggar had said something to me. He's only just pulled out this afternoon. And when do you leave? First thing tomorrow morning. Phew. Stan and I glanced at one another. Charles Carden the same, the big twit, and the Palmers. They all made the minds up weeks ago, I know it. They just wanted to play the dates we had left over here before they let me know. It's infuriating. Well, not very considerate, right enough, Stan said. But it's providential that I should run into the two of you like this just now. I don't suppose you'd think of signing up, stepping into the breach. Stan whistled. My brother would have my guts for garters, he said. Ah, well, Alf said, you can't blame a fellow for trying. I didn't say no, did I? I could probably sort out a bit more money than last time, Alf ventured. All right, count me in, Stan cried, grasping Alf by the hand. Excellent, Alf said. Be at the fun factory at seven in the morning. Got that? Stan was all aflutter suddenly. Yes, going back to America, and, and tomorrow. I need to get to Gordon's, explain that he'll need another second policeman for tomorrow night, because I shall be at sea. At sea! I need to pack myself a trunk. Good grief, there's so much to do. Arthur, do say you're coming too. I stood there in agonies, and Stan was so excited he didn't wait to hear my answer, just galloped off away round the corner and into the night. Well, Arthur, how about it? Alf said. I'm sorry, Alf, I can't, I said. Is it Whimsical Walker? I can have a word with him if you like. No, no, it's it's not him. That's finished. In fact, I'm not sure he has anything coming up for himself, let alone for me, the poor old sod. What then? I took a deep breath. You remember when Carno asked me to compromise his wife so he could divorce her? Al's face went hard. Quite a few people remember that, he said, and they well remember what you said to him too, and give you credit for it still. Well, I said, when I came back from America, I had nowhere to stay, and Edith put me up out of the goodness of our heart. Carno got to hear about it, and said he was going to call me as a witness, as though it was something it wasn't, not at all. And, and in exchange, he'd take me back into the company, or at least into the organisation somewhere. So you see, if I came back to work for him, it would be like I'd agreed to all that. Do you see? Alf nodded slowly. Yes, lad, I do. I left Edith's house, left London, left the business altogether, apart from this one single show tonight with Wimmy, so that Carno wouldn't know where to find me. Alf nodded again. I understand, was all he said. We shook hands solemnly, and he turned to walk away. I stood there as the rain began to fall, and watched the last chance of ever picking up the shattered pieces of my comedy career, the last chance of ever hooking up with Tilly again, and the last chance of ever putting Charlie Chaplin in his place, striding off into the darkness. I couldn't move. The misery felt like lead weights in my legs, in my guts. A moment before he disappeared out of sight, around the corner, Alf stopped under a yellow, flickering gaslight. He turned round, cupped his hand to his mouth, and called back to me. Of course, if you were in America, the governor wouldn't very well be able to call you as a witness to anything, would he? He'd know, though, wouldn't he, if I was to start working for him, I shouted back. Would he? Only if I tell him your real name, Mr. Smith... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. 
Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 